Well, good morning and uh, happy Father's Day, Keith Phillips and um, Rodney Hooper. And uh, thank you, Andy Thake and Minds and Money. Piedmont Lithium has been a client of ours, RK Equities, for some four years. I've known uh, Keith about 20 years. The Piedmont is North Carolina-based hydroxide developer from Lithium Hard Rock Resources. Uh, the last time Keith was here at Minds and Money, um, I guess on video, was right after Battery Day in September. And over the past uh, 12 months, Piedmont stock has risen more than 10 times from $6 to $70 on NASDAQ. It's over a billion market cap. They now have over $165 million in the bank. They've acquired a second, a substantial interest in a second project, Sayana in Quebec. Keith, you've made several senior hires, many from Albemarle, the world's largest lithium producer. And uh, two weeks ago, you published a, a very robust updated scoping study reflecting a near doubling of NPV to $1.9 billion, steady state EBITDA growing from $230 million to $400 million, a 31% after-tax IRR, and a three-year payback period. So with that as the backdrop, uh, Rodney is going to ask a number of questions, uh, and I'll follow up you know, afterwards. Um, but it's, it's been a great year, and uh, very much looking forward to this conversation. Okay, great. Keith, uh, congrats on the, uh, on the latest uh, update. Um, one of the things that I noticed in the new scoping study is it includes an independent uh, LCA analysis by Minbaro, um, and the preliminary analysis shows three key metrics, water use, land footprint, and carbon intensity, and, and Piedmont stands out in all three. So uh, a two-part question, what drives the numbers on all three? And uh, secondly, how is it possible for Piedmont's carbon intensity to be only a quarter of, of that of China? Thanks, Rodney. And thanks, Howard. And happy Father's Day to each of you as well. Uh, happy to be back on with you guys. Yeah, we're very pleased with the results of the scoping study uh, from an economic perspective. Uh, you know, we've got a bigger mineral resource and we, and we knew the numbers would be better, uh, but we're particularly excited about the LCA analysis that the Minviro team uh, uh, produced and completed for us. We spent a lot of time thinking about the environmental implications of our business over the last several months and quarters. Um, really in conversations with prospective customers, you know, big car companies and battery companies, as well as conversations with big institutional investors who are very focused on these matters. Uh, and also um, conversations with our neighbors uh, in North Carolina, frankly. So um, the Minviro folks introduced us about a year ago to this, this concept that there are three major uh, kind of footprints people talk about. So obviously there's carbon, but there's also the impact a project has on the land uh, in its area and the water uh, in its area. And we knew we would look really good from a land and water perspective. Um, you know, we have a hard rock lithium, hard rock lithium project, high grade hard rock lithium project. So kind of by definition, we'll take up a relatively small amount of land. Um, the total pit acreage for us is about hundred acres for our uh, two or three pits which is uh, you know, considerably less of a land impact, say, than Atacama brine projects would have. Um, and uh, you know, the water footprint we knew would be low. A lot of the Western Australian uh, folks are operating essentially in a desert. Uh, certainly the brine operations in the Atacama are by definition the world's driest desert. 
So we knew that would be good. The carbon footprint was a, a, a little bit of a, a positive surprise for us. And it's really reflects a few things. Uh, number one, to sort of directly address the question relative to China, it's really important to understand the nature of the project we're now um, planning to construct. This is a single integrated site with a quarry, a concentrate plant, and a chemical plant all on that same site. So we're going to be shipping our concentrate, um, you know, half of a mile from one end of the site to the other end of the site. Um, very different from the incumbent producers today uh, on the hard rock side who ship their concentrates from somewhere in Western Australia to the coast of Western Australia, and then on a ship 5,000 miles into China. And then off, often hundreds were really over a thousand miles into a place like Chengdu by truck and barge. Um, and that transportation impact for them has an important carbon footprint. It's not, it, it's not, it's not kind of the sole determinant, but it has an important um, impact. Uh, the uh, flow sheet the Chinese use and the two big new Australian plants use is uh, for the lithium hydroxide production is sulfuric acid roast, which is a more complex process with uh, more reagent needs. Uh, and again, I should mention our, our study is a scope one, two, and three emissions. So we're counting scope three emissions for our important raw materials and for those of the other projects. And uh, you know, for the uh, Metzoatotec flow sheet, the alkaline pressure leach we're using, the reagent usage is, is less uh, and it's just less invasive generally. So the results are very favorable. We knew we would be very favorable relative to China. Uh, and again, uh, largely that's because they're shipping concentrate from Australia to China. But we're also uh, we're pleasantly surprised to be lower than, uh, say, SQM producing hydroxide in Chile. That's largely driven by reagent usage for them, which is uh, kind of a bigger impact and scope three implications of that larger impact than in our process. Okay, great. So you touched on it briefly there. It's it's uh, the next question for me is uh, the innovative hydroxide technology. Piedmont's using uh, a uh, sulfate-free, uh, the O2-Tech process. What are the benefits of this over, you know, sulfuric acid roasting currently used in China and um, planned for Australian hydroxide projects? Yeah, no, good question. I think it's, um, the benefits are really multiple. Uh, certainly on the environmental side, it's a cleaner, it's a cleaner process. It's a simpler flow sheet. There's less equipment in the in the process, and and the reagents are less expensive. So, from an economic perspective, the capex per ton is lower, and the opex per ton is meaningfully lower. Uh, and it's a simpler flow sheet. And it's interesting. It's innovative on the one hand. On the other hand, it's it's really been around since the 1950s and 60s. It used to be known as the Quebec Lithium Project process. Uh, there are others we know, uh, some of whom are folks that you know well, also who are. Um, utilizing this flow sheet in their studies and in the project. Um, I think it will become the incumbent technology. There's really no advantage of sulfuric acid roast relative to this. This is less expensive from a capital perspective, less expensive from an operating perspective and simpler. And I suspect the, um, and cleaner, and I suspect the mezzo Auto tech folks will be very, very busy. Now our team is working hard with them and and like, like always happens in plants like this, there'll be some proprietary improvements that we'll make to the process that we're very focused on making sure are our IP and are shared with others. Um, others may have their own uh, you know, tweaks they, they think about, but um, this is a flow sheet we're very comfortable with. Uh, and when I say we, 
not just the team that's originally been thinking about it, but also the, some of the new additions, someone like David Klinecki, our chief operating officer who joined us from Albemarle, where he ran their whole hard rock lithium business. He's very comfortable with the process and that made me, me more comfortable. Um, and I think as we think about building out our, our hydroxide business over time, because you know, we view ourselves as a business, not a project. So this is a 30,000 ton hydroxide project. Um, we intend to build more, we'll, we'll use this flow sheet and we think it has a, a great advantages. And, and just moving on to, um, again, you, you mentioned it briefly, you know, people know it's the project's based in the US, you know, why is, is Piedmont focusing on hydroxide rather than carbonate? Great question. So we, and we, we really spent a lot of time hitting this hard with people, investors in particular. I think, I think the more you learn about lithium, I think, uh, certainly the more comfortable we've gotten that hydroxide is the place to be from an end market perspective, and spodumene is the preferred feedstock. So hydroxide, carbonate's a bigger business today, and carbonate will continue to grow. So it's not, not, nothing against carbonate, but we think particularly in our market, which is the United States and uh, secondarily Western Europe, we think um, there'll be a preference for cars with longer range, higher end cars, uh, SUVs and trucks, et cetera. We think those trucks will uh, generally require hydroxide, not exclusively, but principally. So hydroxide demand will grow more quickly. Uh, over time, there's been a premium for hydroxide relative to carbonate. We'll see if that is sustained. Um, um, many analysts think it will be, but, but time will tell. But the lowest cost way to produce hydroxide is from spodumene concentrate. So we have a cost advantage relative to the brine producers. At, at the carbonate level, the brine producers are very competitive. Certainly some of them are. And, and others can be. Um, so we thought taking a hard rock asset that, that can be a low cost provider of hydroxide, faster growth, higher price market, made more sense for us. It was, it was a pretty easy decision. We'll have some flexibility in our flow sheet. We'll be able to produce carbonate. Um, matter of fact, we will as an intermediate product, uh, but we're targeting the hydroxide market. We think that's the right place. And then importantly, spodumene, we're just big believers. You know, as Howard mentioned, we made the investment in Quebec. We can talk more about that later. Um, in some of our conversations with customers, and they think about how fast they're going to need to grow their automotive, their electric vehicle production, how fast they're going to need battery capacity and cathode capacity and thus lithium capacity to come online. There's sort of a consensus building, I think, that the only way to truly scale during the, this decade ahead of us is through spodumene. Um, there are other materials that are interesting, uh, some of which are more or less developed commercially, I would say. Um, but some in particular, I think, are hard to rely on if you're a car company and you absolutely positively have to have the batteries. And, and all you know for sure is you can get them if you are relying on spodumene. It's relatively straightforward to ramp up and scale uh, such production. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's interesting. And, and then just circling back to the, you know, the question of the carbon footprint differential. So, we see and, and many others see a world of $100 a ton carbon taxes. So we see um, the differential in uh, the 15 ton differential with China translating into a $1,500 premium uh, for Piedmont. And in addition to that, um, you know, potentially uh, the, uh, the basis for even a higher price premium in the US, given that close proximity, et cetera, and logistics means, you know, downstream customers, when cathode manufacturers enter into the US will need 
lower inventory levels uh, given you know the closer proximity they are do you do you agree and, and that along with uh, no risk of import duties you know for domestic production do you um, see those as uh, sort of building blocks for a, a price premium for hydroxide in the u.s uh, I do. Uh, it's it's very interesting. Um, I think you've laid out all the re all the reasons which we agree with. We haven't assumed a price premium in our modeling. We we briefly toyed with that idea. We didn't really have a basis, uh, you know, to, to to kind of agree on a number. So we just decided not to. The numbers are pretty exceptional anyway. Um, bottom line is, we think about it. Anybody consuming lithium hydroxide in the United States will prefer. A domestic supplier for just all sorts of reasons. One of the big German car companies, when we first spoke to them two years ago, they were surprised to learn we were developing a project in North Carolina. They have uh, planned operations in the U in the southeastern U.S. that are rebuilding now. And in their case, they just said, "Listen, every everything we need for our cars—steering wheels, windshields, batteries, etc.—we want to get locally. Uh, it just it, it it has a positive impact from an inventory perspective, uh, we avoid possible tariffs, avoid possible weather events, et cetera. It just tightens the supply chain. So there's a big advantage. Uh, and I think particularly now, just given the sort of national security concerns and energy security concerns around something like lithium, I think I think there's, there's a reason to expect you could get a premium. You could imagine if someone's having a year-end pricing discussion and it's a car company or a battery company trying to decide whether they take material from say Piedmont in North Carolina or Choose your Chinese, um, you know, lithium leader, Ganfeng, Tangxi, General Lithium, et cetera. In my view, there's a 100% chance they're going to pay more for our material, um, and and we should be able to insist on that, particularly as the capacity builds out here. So, um, we do think there's a real opportunity. It's not baked into our numbers. There is big upside there. I think what I tell people generally is, I think there's an opportunity to have meaningfully higher prices than are in our model. Um, and I think uh, those obviously would translate to stronger economics. I should mention Galaxy Lithium from Australia. They have a, pro a spodumene project in Quebec, James Bay. They did an updated PEA a few months ago. And they didn't provide detail, but they did talk about um, using a price deck. I think it was a benchmark minerals price deck adjusted for regional factors, I think was the term they used, something along those lines. So they didn't they didn't say they had they used a premium, but it kind of implied they would. They certainly wouldn't be a discount uh, for North American material. I think you might see more of that in time as the market matures, and I think it can only uh, be to our benefit. Yeah, we agree. You know, we have uh, 600 gigawatt hours of demand just for passenger EVs in the U.S. by 2030. So it's a long, long way from where we are today, and just. In line with that theme, Keith, you know, the scoping study I see outlines essentially near a 50% increase in planned production to 30,000 tons. Um, I presume this is on the back of an increased resource size? Yeah, it's really two things. Um, number one, so, so let me step back. In our conversations with some big investors and some big car companies, frankly, um, we had a project that was planned to produce 22,700 tons and a consistent feedback we got was, you know, gee, that's a nice number. It's big enough to be relevant, but the world's going to need a lot more lithium. America's going to need a lot more lithium. Why wouldn't you produce more? And, and frankly, uh, that was a reasonable question. There are capex efficiencies and economic efficiencies to scale. Um, so a year or so ago, we began to focus on how we could scale up. And there are really a couple factors. Number one is 
um, you know, how big is our mineral resource? Can we make it bigger? So we took it from 28 million tons to 39 million tons. I think it's a 40% increase. So we've meaningfully increased it. We have five rigs still drilling. Uh, we'll probably have an update again later this summer. Won't be that significant, but it, it should add some tons. Um, and that allows us to think about uh, running a smaller plant longer or building a bigger chemical plant. So we chose to build a bigger chemical plant. Uh, and then along the way, as we modeled our spodumene concentrate production, um, we, we thought about what the bottlenecks were in our process. And the bottlenecks really were trucks going up and down the ramps into an open pit kind of quarry. And we decided initially for that reason, uh, because I, I kept pushing the guys, gee, how much concentrate could we produce a year? And with the diesel truck fleet, we could produce, you know, less than 200,000 tons a year. By replacing that fleet with in-pit crushing and electric conveying, we were able to uh, generate greater annual production. So we've increased our spodumene concentrate production more than 50%. Uh, we're contemplating 248,000 tons a year. Um, and the side benefit, which is very, very important of using the electric conveying is, um, you know, well, it's higher CapEx, I think it's $63 million of capital that we otherwise wouldn't have had to spend. It's a big number, uh, but it pays for itself uh, in lower operating costs and it pays for itself meaningfully from a carbon footprint perspective. And beyond just carbon, it'll be less noisy, it'll be less dusty, uh, there'll be fewer trucks on the road, et cetera. So it's a, it's a real benefit. So we now in our model, uh, model that will produce about 248,000 tons a year of concentrate, we only need around 200,000 tons of concentrate to, to feed our 30,000 ton hydroxide capacity. So our model generates excess concentrate, which we're modeling to sell. I think ultimately we'll build more conversion capacity and we won't sell that. I mean, we do have the agreement to sell some to Tesla, but beyond that, we won't be selling concentrate. And if you look closely at our site plan in our scoping study, um, we don't describe this on that on the plan itself, but um, there are actually four 15,000 ton trains on the lithium hydroxide site. We only plan to build two today. Uh, we have room comfortably to build two more and maybe more beyond that. And uh, you know, we'll be using that excess spodumene capacity in part to feed, feed that uh, additional chemical plant capacity. Okay, right, and that, that makes sense. Uh, you know, it ties in with, with what we're seeing out of the Biden administration as well in terms of processing in the US. Just um, one thing I'm not sure that, you know, listeners you know fully understand in terms of byproduct credits and so on uh, keith it ties in your, your head grade is around 1.1 versus something like green bushes which is closer to two you know perhaps explain to listeners how it is that piedmont can be a, a really low cost producer of hydroxide given that differential yeah, it's a great question. Uh, we get it all the time. I, I think particularly from knowledgeable mining investors um, and, and lithium hard rock investors, many of whom are in Australia. And uh, in our corporate presentation, we provide some good information, sort of there's a stacked bar chart that shows uh, how much it costs for us to produce a ton of spodumene concentrate and uh, what the byproduct credit is that we have to partially offset that and what our net spodumene concentrate cost is. And then, then we take that concentrate into the chemical plant. So um, we will have lower grade than green bushes. We'll also have a higher strip ratio. So by definition, our mining costs are meaningfully higher. I think the number is $221 a ton. Uh, I don't know what green bushes number is. My guess is it's closer to 50, but I don't know. Uh, big difference. So they have higher grade material and less you know, non-ore material to move. So it's less expensive to kind of do that. But then once you get the rock out of the ground, 
every single unit cost is higher in Australia, sometimes meaning materially higher than it would be in, in North Carolina. So for example, we're assuming it would cost us $2 a ton to take our ore or our concentrate from our concentrate plant to our chemical plant half a mile away. That's conservative. It may be, it may be closer to zero, but we're assuming $2 a ton. It'll cost $30, $50, $70 a ton for most of the projects in Australia. You need around seven tons of uh, concentrate per tons of hydroxide. So at 50, at a $50 transport cost differential times seven, that's $350 on, on that cost curve. Uh, there are many other elements. Some of the folks have to take their uh, aluminum silica tail from there or so, sodium sulfate tail and, and over there back to a mining pit. That can add another 50 bucks a ton times seven. There's a 5% state royalty in Western Australia. We don't have, that's a couple hundred bucks a ton of hydroxide. Um, but then most importantly, and you mentioned byproducts, uh, you know, half of the revenue from the historic lithium mines in our region was byproduct industrial mineral sales, quartz, feldspar, and mica. And these are materials that are in big demand in the Southeastern US, which is a big industrial heartland for the US. Uh, and they are also in places like Western Europe. Uh, they're not in big demand in, in, in sparsely populated places like Western Australia or Northern Quebec, for example. Uh, so while those uh, operators and projects might have this similar minerals in their spodumene pegmatites, there's really, there's probably no market for them to economically recover them. So for them, it's just waste rock. In our case, 80% of the ore that goes into the concentrate plant will be recovered and sold as either spodumene concentrate or quartz feldspar mica concentrate. We've spent two years working with potential buyers uh, for our uh, byproduct concentrates. And, and we initially made a conservative assumption that we'd be able to sell a third of what we could produce of the byproducts. We didn't know the markets. We hadn't met the customers. We didn't really know what standards they needed, whether we could make the right product. We've since learned that in fact, our mineralogy is exceptional. And in some cases, our quartz, for example, uh, our quartz is a fairly bright white quartz, the sort of thing that's needed in the uh, engineered quartz countertop business. We currently import much of that material from India and Turkey uh, because we don't have a lot of bright white quartz in the U.S. We do at our project. We have customers uh, in the southeastern U.S. who want it. Uh, so we're talking to uh, you know building products companies, solar glass companies for quartz, ceramic tile companies, uh, joint compound producers, etc. And uh, we've spent a lot of time over the last nine to 12 months in particular uh, with these groups and have developed a really high degree of confidence that, that we can actually sell all of our byproduct materials at prices that are pretty close to where we had modeled them on a blended basis before. Uh, but net-net, the economics are very, very significant. It results in, I think, $165 credit uh, to our spodumene concentrate costs and results in us being, we believe, on a net basis, net of byproducts the lowest cost spodumene concentrate producer in the world, uh, which is obviously great. And that feeds right into our low cost hydroxide business. I'm hopeful and confident at the same time that we'll, we'll be announcing offtake agreements on these byproducts in the coming months, um, possibly before our definitive feasibility study is published in, in late September, uh, possibly later in the year. Um, we're, we're quite advanced uh, and, and the, the interest is quite high. That, that's great. I'm going to add just a little bit on green bushes. I mean, there is tantalum, but uh, um, Al and Talisman don't get that tantalum credit. Uh, it goes to a different entity. So um, that is also why it, uh, Piedmont is cheaper. I'm going to run into a number of other questions here. Um, 
Keith, so also on the tax side, uh, you know, royalties and uh, corporate taxes in America are cheaper than they are in Australia. So all of those things, you know, net after tax cash flow is is ultimately what investors really should be looking at. You know, not even just um, you know what is the cash cost. Uh, but going to the revenue side, you're, you're, the 2021 study you used, um, uh, maybe you could tell us the, the, the price assumptions you used for uh, spodumene and hydroxide, but they are, um, they're similar, I think, to spot prices. Um, are you seeing increased interest in offtake at pricing around these study assumptions? I'd say yes. Um, so we, we have, uh, we're in constant communication, uh, have been for really a few years, but, but particularly for the last year, you know, Austin Devaney, whom you guys know, joined us July 1, 2020. Uh, he had been the head of lithium sales for Albemarle and previously Rockwood for a total of nine years. Uh, Austin is fantastic and he knows, he knows all the customers, uh, certainly the big cathode producers, battery companies and car companies. So we're in, we're in a steady dialogue. We have regular calls with most folks. We shifted our tone a little bit, um, frankly, as we've had more success and we're getting closer to development. And as the market has tightened, as we hoped it would, we're, we're less and less focused on signing up a quick offtake agreement just for a newsflash. We're more focused on developing real strategic relationships with potential uh, offtakers. So today, frankly, we don't have any lithium for sale. And I, yeah, partly because we're not producing any, but, but partly because we're not willing to commit lithium today uh, on a long-term basis to anybody unless they offer very, very compelling terms. Um, we're confident that the closer we get to development, and uh, which means you know finishing a definitive feasibility study, uh, finishing off all the local uh, state permitting, uh, and funding the project, we're going to get to a stage where the market will be tighter and tighter. And, and all the folks we've been talking to will kind of come, come to the realization, gee, this is actually going to happen. These guys are going to be a low cost source of clean lithium hydroxide in North Carolina, not, and not too far away. We need to be part of this. Um, you know, we can talk more about it later, but we, we have engaged bankers and we are going to be talking to folks about possible strategic investment opportunities. And if there are, take, take, say, two major car companies and, and one would like a supply agreement and are willing to pay X per ton for five years, and the other would like a supply agreement and are also willing to pay X per ton for five years, but might want to fund 20 or 40 or 50% of our project, we're going to want to talk to the second party. And we're, we're just now at the stage where we're going to beginning, begin those conversations and we'll see where those lead. Um, but I think it's fair to say that certainly the battery companies have always told us that they thought lithium prices had to be higher. Uh, that, that in fact, um, no one was building new capacity. Demand was obviously gonna go uh, up significantly. And, and this, this is a reality that's now come to pass. And they've kind of understood that from day one. They're, they're just, they've been in the business forever. I think some of the car companies who are more recently getting into procurement themselves have uh, some of them, I would say, have been taken a little by surprise. They're used to being, you know, the big, the big dog in the negotiation. They're the big car companies who have big buying power, not, uh, numerous possible suppliers, and they then they leverage that power as they should, as you'd expect them to. I think in lithium, it's going to be a little different. There are there are a number of major auto companies in the world. They say twelve major global auto companies plus Tesla and all the new upstarts in the electric vehicle business. There aren't going to be 12 sources of lithium supply in the United States. There might be, in my view, two or three or four, maybe lithium hydroxide su suppliers. 
Um, so we think we're in an interesting strategic position and we hope to be able to capitalize on that. What is the timeline? Um, the CapEx of the project has grown um, to 800 million. Uh, you have appointed, uh, you said in your last press release, uh, both JP Morgan and Evercore, you know, for the strategic process. I, I guess what is, um, I guess what is their overall mandate? W what do you hope out of this process and what's the timing, I guess, to fund the, I guess, the, the initial Piedmont project? And separately, I want to ask you about like Sayana and Quebec and, and potential for further consolidation. The, the mandate with Evercore and JP Morgan is very much focused on the Carolina Lithium project. So that's our core project in North Carolina uh, with 800 plus million of CapEx, as you, as you uh, rightly indicated. Um, DFS should be complete the end of September. Uh, so we're looking for kind of to bring our strategic process and financing process to a head in the fourth quarter, I would say 2021. So later this year, we don't under, we don't we don't have a clear path as to what we want. I mean, we don't have a target. We're not we're not going out to people and saying this is what we need. We're willing to sell a twenty percent stake for X, or we're not we're not going out with that. We're really going out to develop broad interest in the project, and we're going to a number of um, entities, some of whom would be obvious: big car companies, big battery companies, big cathode companies, maybe other lithium companies. Others of whom might be less obvious, big oil companies, big chemical companies, big mining companies. We're not really focused on private equity capital right now. There's lots of that. We can go do that if we need to. The plan is to really go out and, and, be, and begin the process of educating people on what Piedmont lithium is, what the opportunity is. You know, why should you care about lithium? If you're going to care about lithium, why should you care about Piedmont? You should, you should care about lithium because it's, uh, it's, it's going to be a fast growth, high margin business. Generally, if you're, say, a Dow Chemical or a big chemical company. If you're an oil company, maybe you should care because it's going to be an important source of the energy that fuels transportation in the future, which is something you've been doing uh, along the way. But then increasingly, we want once people understand that it's a business they should think about, we want them to understand why they should care about Piedmont. And, and to us, that all comes down to you know, we're going to produce lithium hydroxide from spodumene concentrate at low cost with a very clean footprint in North Carolina. We're not there's nothing new to our process. There's no new um, newfangled uh, raw material source that's never been commercialized. We're not in a, a difficult part of the world. It's pretty easy. So we'll be interested to see what people come up with. Um, there have been a number of joint ventures. You know, they're, they're very common in the oil and gas business. There have been some in the lithium business. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. And what we're really looking for is we want to find strong partners who really uh, have a lower cost of capital than we have, say. Um, and can fund our business, uh, fund fund the North Carolina project on a basis that's less dilutive than we might otherwise have to do ourselves. Uh, but time will tell. We're not really sure. Um, I'm, I would say I'm very optimistic. I expect interest to be quite high, but I don't have great clarity right now on um, on kind of where where the process will end up. I hope to have a lot more clarity by say Labor Day. Kind of reminds me a little bit, uh, Mineral Resources uh, ran a process. I think they had appointed Macquarie, which ended up in Albemarle kind of coming in for Wajina. That wasn't a, uh, an integrated project like yours is, but from, from the timing perspective a few years ago um, and the scarcity of, of that you know, project, um, I could see a similar like um, competition you know, you know, for partnership. Now, that was a, Wajina was a very strategic asset given its scale. Uh, and I think uh, Albemarle paid a big price uh, to, you know, become an investor in that project and kind of control its destiny and, and, and kind of control their own raw material supply for years to come. So that was, I think, you know, it was a deal that many people panned at the time. I think it was a brilliant deal, frankly. 
I hesitate to think what spots mean concentrate prices might be today had they not bought it and had they let someone else buy it, the Chinese or a new entrant. Uh, so I think it was a great strategic deal for them and it, I think it was beneficial for the industry. And I don't know for sure, but you know, they, the initial deal they cut was to pay 1.15 billion for half the project. I suspect that was sort of 50% of NPV. You know, our, our NPV is a billion nine. So conceptually, if somebody wanted to pay half of NPV, say 950 to buy half of Carolina Lithium, and uh, then we would each fund our share of development. That's the sort of thing that could be quite interesting. I'm not saying that's where we'll end up. And our asset is quite different from Lodgna. As you point out, it's, it's a, you know, they had talked about integration up in the Pilbara, but it never in my mind really made any sense, but it was a very large ore body. So, so from that perspective, it was strategic. <laughs> What's strategic about our ore body is it's the only spodumene project in the United States, full stop. And that's, we think people will care about that. We think it's the single most strategic lithium asset in the world, uh, given that location. It'll be low cost, ultra low cost, uh, ultra clean as these things go, and, uh, and just surrounded by really important customers. Any update on Sayana uh, and, and North American lithium process? Uh, and uh, do you see scope, I guess, for further consolidation of hard rock projects? I mean, you have a second project. Do you anticipate having a third or or fourth project you know, down the road? So on Sayana, we made an investment in January. We own 19.9% of Sayana Mining, the Australian public company. We own 25% of Sayana Quebec, which is their Quebec operations. So we have essentially a 40% economic interest in their Quebec business. They also have some gold and lithium exploration properties in WA. Um, we're very happy with that investment. As many people know, it's in the public domain. Sayana Quebec is pursuing the acquisition of North American Lithium, which is a uh, currently in, in on care and maintenance and in bankruptcy, but had been operating. Uh, we, we visited there three years ago when they were operating. It's an asset that we think fits really well with Sayana. It's in the same uh, Abitibi region near Val d'Or, Quebec, big mining town, great uh, you know, labor force there, rail, um, all the trades are there. It's a, it, we think it's by far the best location within Quebec. And, and as you kind of heard me talk about, location matters a lot in lithium. Uh, so we're hopeful they'll prevail. We're, we've taken a view that we're not going to talk a lot about NAL until there's clarity on what's happened. Uh, there is a process going on. Uh, it's public information that Sayana has been, Sayana Quebec has been chosen kind of as the favorite bidder by the creditors, but there's a process working its way through the court system, governing the bankruptcy. We'll see how that ends up, uh, but we're hopeful. And if we were to win that, uh, I think you, you, you wouldn't be surprised to learn that we might duplicate or replicate what we're doing in North Carolina up there. Quebec is a wonderful spot to produce lithium hydroxide. Uh, they have a uh, you know, great transportation network with rail and with the St. Lawrence Seaway uh, you know, on, on sea as well. Um, and uh, between Sayana and NAL, they could easily produce 200 to 250,000 tons a year of concentrate. And the right thing to do with that would be to convert it in Quebec. It would be less expensive than shipping it into say North Carolina uh, there's low-cost, clean hydroelectricity in Quebec. So that's something we would begin to focus on if and when this is concluded favorably. Uh, beyond that, I think it's fair to say we, we're confident that the lithium business is a growth business for a couple decades at least. Um, we, we built a team, we're 20 plus strong now, of, of people, very talented team, very experienced team with a lot of experience in lithium, hard rock lithium in particular. We think we have... Uh, you know, a deeper understanding of what it takes to go from ex exploration to development and construction and operations than most other pre-producers in hard rock lithium, well, really any pre-producer in hard rock lithium 
we think we have a, a far deeper team. And um, we think using that team and using um, our capital where it's important, we can we could uh, possibly make some other investments and take what is now kind of a one and a half asset company or 1.4 asset company and make it a, a three or four legged stool and have a really a business that's spodumene based, spodumene dihydroxide based in good locations, um, feeding into the US and European markets, essentially feeding lithium, feeding lithium hydroxide capacity that we would control that would feed into the US and, uh, and European markets. So we're not gonna chase this. It's not a, it's size isn't an imperative for us, but the Sayana deal, uh, uh, just as a reminder, I mean, when we made that investment, their market cap was $20 million. I don't know, it's 200 million or so today. Um, it was a really well-timed investment. It was a misunderstood public company. It was undervalued. There was an opportunity for us to use a small amount of capital to gain a great degree of influence and uh, and a great relationship with Sayana. If, if other opportunities like that present themselves, we're ready to move and we can move fast. And we are, in fact, in conversations with a number of potential parties to do similar things. So I'm hopeful uh, that we'll be able to add um, additional high quality assets, spodumene based in good locations, which would feed our grander hydroxide objectives. We would like to be the biggest lithium hydroxide producer in, in certainly in, the, in North America uh, and certainly in the US and uh, maybe ultimately in Western Europe. I thought that the deal you did with Sayana I characterize as kind of Ganfeng-esque, you know, in that you took equity stake at project level and parent level and got, I think, 50% of the offtake. So 40% of the economics for 12 million bucks. Um, and uh, as you talk about hard rock, you know, to hydroxide in North America, you know, you're sitting there, Albemarle and Livent are, are in North Carolina, but they're uh, busy in other parts of the world. So as a nimble um, junior, you know, listed uh, on, on, on the NASDAQ uh, with a very good cost of capital now, um, you know, it, 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 it's very exciting to watch um, that you're really the only ones focused on hard rock in, in, in that sense. I mean, there are others that are focused on DLE or, or clay opportunities. Um, so I think that's, that's interesting. I, I want to conclude with just a couple of um, maybe five or six minutes to talk about, you know, the the U.S. capital markets, but also U.S. politics and the whole North American supply chain. So the EV battery SPACs, um, they're raising a lot of capital you know, in the USA. Uh, President Biden is pushing very aggressively uh, to catch up with China and Europe in terms of EV and battery production. Um, he just announced you know, a comprehensive critical mineral supply strategy, which heavily emphasized lithium. Then is uh, the biggest cheerleader I've ever seen, you know, Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm, uh, championing uh, public-private partnerships, suggesting uh, Department of, um, the Loan Project Office at the Department of Energy is, is open for business with loans, guarantees, grants. In 2012, the DOE provided funding for Albemarle for expanding hydroxide capacity in North Carolina. Um, and uh, the U.S. has flagged also as part of this potential for strong collaboration with Canada uh, and the Quebec government, you know, has been a big supporter of lithium projects in, in the past. So in the context of all of that, uh, how is the public markets and government initiatives uh, impacting overall sentiment toward Piedmont in terms of raising funding? And might, you know, the U.S. government and or the Canadian government, you know, support be relevant to Piedmont, you know, or Sayana's financing plans? Certainly the backdrop has never been better um, for the EV thematic generally in the U.S. Um, and that's, it's extended from 
politics and 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 kind of government to uh, kind of the corporate arena where the big car companies you know, we're, we're very much past the tipping point um the big car companies are, are seem to be competing with one another to bring out bolder plans week after week which is fantastic so the, the automotive business is going electric um the u.s wants to be part of it um we think the u.s uh, broadly defined we think the political arena in the u.s really on a bipartisan basis is supportive of uh, critical materials development in the U.S. and feeding that into downstream conversion in the U.S. Uh, we think that's very positive. It's not clear to me yet what will come from uh, what legislation will arise. Um, you know, we remain pretty divided politically, and there's some there's some areas of the uh, I think the plans that Biden administration have that might be difficult to pass. There are others that might be easier for people to get on board with. Time will tell. So we're, you know, we're in, we uh, we have good relationships. We're focused on this. If if there are opportunities for us to to um, you know, position ourselves for attractive financing that makes sense for us, we'll do that. Um, we're operating on the, on, on the premise that that won't exist and that we're gonna be funding our own business. And that, that's why we have uh, JP Morgan, Evercore, Engage, et cetera. I think north of the border in Quebec, you'll see something similar to the Quebec government and the Canadian government are both very uh, focused on uh, helping make, make uh, that part of the world a, a real source of supply. So um, we're optimistic. Uh, certainly, the loan programs office, as you mentioned, uh, has been around for some time. They've done some really good things for the electric vehicle business. Uh, they helped Tesla when they acquired and repurposed the Fremont plant. They helped Nissan with the Leaf plant in Tennessee, et cetera. And they've had some good successes, and I, 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 I gather they're uh, open to you know, doing more. And uh, you know, we're position, we'll position ourselves with all those folks, and, and we'll see where it ends up. And I, I would hope by Again, we're hoping to bring our financing together by the fourth quarter. Um, could could slip if it makes sense to slip, but we, we think we'll be ready by then, and uh, we'll be pursuing all avenues um, where that where that can help. That sounds great. Thank you very much, uh, Keith, for taking uh, time out of your uh, Father's Day morning, um, and uh, I think we can uh, end it on on that. Thanks a lot, guys. Much appreciated. <laughs>